Hello, everybody. Welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about Jane Austen and our love for her and give a big middle finger to all the haters. And this is a very special episode because we're circling back to the very beginning of this podcast and we're returning to Pride and Prejudice. And we're both, we were just talking about the fact that we're both very nervous to do this podcast because Pride and Prejudice has been covered by other podcasts um, very well. And even though we, we've talked a lot about how to organize this and the things we want to say, it's such a sprawling, there's so much to say. So I'm sure we'll do our typical thing where we started talking about one thing and then going on a total tangent, but that seems to work for us. I have to say, <laughs> people still listen to us, even though we do that. So Pride and Prejudice. And so uh, Maggie, I think you will agree. We do not have to do a plot synopsis for our listeners. Kristen, you ruined my joke. Oh, no. I was going to do this whole thing where I said, okay, everyone, I'm going to give you a plot synopsis. <laughs> uh, just in case you don't know what Pride and Prejudice is about, the, there's a girl, Lizzie Bennett, and she's great. And, and then I was going to be like, you guys all know this story. Yeah. Honestly, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen anything Pride and Prejudice, maybe not the six-hour miniseries, but maybe the movie uh, version or read the book, then... I mean, it's great if you're still <laughs> listening to us, but come on, you guys all know the story. Yeah, it. go do your, yeah, like, I don't think we have any haters listening to this podcast, but if we do, welcome, go watch <laughs> the uh, miniseries and then come back. And the miniseries, you know, informed the first two podcasts. I mean, in the first episode, you were like, we're going to be talking about the text, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah. and then we totally <laughs> did that because the movie was so, so seminal and what I wanted to, you know, really dig into. Now I'm sure, I'm sure most people who are fans of the book and fans of the miniseries, if when you reread the book, much like us, your one of your first thoughts will probably be that was a really faithful adaptation. Yes, and so many of the lines are taken mm -hmm. directly. And um, you know, I I think I read an interview with Davies where he was like, Yeah, if I went back and did that, I, I wouldn't have done that. I was just too afraid to deviate from the source material. And I'm thinking, no, why? Yeah. yeah so why deviate from Austin? Yeah. And, and he it was so faithful and it's, that's why it's so good. But when you go back and read the book, it acts as an unfortunate filter so that when you're reading the book mm -hmm. and you read the lines, you hear the delivery of the actors in the movie and it's already been interpreted for you. And one of the struggles I had with this first reread is that I was getting bogged down in that and not reading the text. And I was trying to go back and reread paragraphs and absorb them as I would have were I just reading the book for the first time. Yeah. I know it is very difficult for people when there is such a kind of seminal example of a film or a miniseries where in their head they see the characters as that actor. Mm -hmm. um, this is also very common, I think, with Harry Potter books where, oh, Snape will always be Alan Rickman or I always see Emma, uh, Emma Watson or something like that. And for this, I actually don't see a lot of the actors when I'm reading it in my head. There are some exceptions. And sometimes I will even think, oh, in my head, this person, like reading a particular passage, I will even think to myself, oh, you know, in the movie, it's in the show, it's like this, but in my head, I'm seeing it differently. And I acknowledge that, but I do have some very different visuals and, you know, kind of hearing the voices in my head from the miniseries. Well, that's when gonna they, happen. That's just gonna happen naturally though, I'm sure. Um, one of the things I have to say about Harry Potter and the adaptations though is, 
Um, I read the book, obviously a lot of us read the books before we saw the movies and then you get mad because you're like, that's not what that character is supposed to look like or how they're supposed to sound or how they're supposed to deliver that line. And I always imagined Lupin as really hot. So, <laughs> for some reason. Of all the characters that I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I did. I was even like the word, the number one word she uses to describe him is probably shabby. Yeah, well, yeah, but I don't know. He's an intellectual. I'm always so attracted funny. to that. It's so and... funny. Also, <laughs> I think it's really hilarious. I mean, not to hold myself up as like I'm so much more mature than everyone else, but I just think it's so weird when people get angry. Oh, yeah. When a movie interpretation differs from their 100% subjective view. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, you can have the author describe a character. And with Austin, there's very little physical descriptions. And so, but and in Harry Potter, there there are more. But when someone is like, that looks nothing like I pictured, I'm enraged. How, how can you be angry? It's in your own brain. Movie yeah. producers and directors and casting agents don't have a one-way view into your particular head but that's how you fell in love with the characters that's how it's ripping away your reality and the people you think you know like what if you were reincarnated maggie as as a totally different woman with totally different mannerisms a totally different look and i would be like you're not maggie okay (laughs) but let me just tell you having a different actor on screen for people to enjoy does not take away my enjoyment of the character and it shouldn't and it shouldn't i i I just i just don't i mean i under i guess i understand on an intellectual level what you're saying about like how people get angry and feel betrayed and stuff like that but in a realistic real world view i just don't get it like you're crazy (laughs) now i'm gonna get hate mail well that could happen with me it's like enjoying a movie and the thing, and the Harry Potter movies, you know, are very different from the books in a lot of ways. My love of the movies does not take away any part of my love for the books. And they're different. It's a different form of storytelling. It is. And that, that has turned out to be true, you know, even from the beginning for me and for, with Pride and Prejudice, you know, who cannot, who cannot love this book? I have a quote. So I read the, um, uh, the pocket book edition of Pride and Prejudice. It was issued in 1940 something uh it coincided with the release of the metro goldwyn mayor uh inspiring motion picture oh, you know how i feel about that one we <laughs> talked about this in our last episode um, yeah with Laurence olivier and, and actually margaret's mom gave this to me she found it at like a, a thrift store or something and she's like oh my god it's so fun it's so old um <laughs> it's, it's but it's great to read um but it has a quote from William Lyon Phelps, who I don't know who that is, but on the cover. He sounds like an old white dude. He does. And it sounds one of the few, it says one of the few great novels of the world. And hey, you can't, I don't think anyone could really argue with that. I agree. This is definitely her most famous and most beloved work. I have to say that uh, it also has a quote on the back, which um, inspired my rereading of this, or I kept in mind you know, without really intending to, but just because I had just read it, the quote on the back says, Jane Austen, quote, describes men and women exactly as they are, one critic said, and tells her tale of ordinary life with such truthful delineation, such bewildering simplicity, and moreover, with such a purity of style and language as have rarely been equaled and perhaps never surpassed. And um, is that supposed to be a compliment? 
Yeah, and well, and all the characters are drawn with the humor, delicacy, and intimate knowledge of men and women, which are always found in Jane Austen. And uh, so, yeah, every time, every passage I was reading, I was like, yes, simplicity, purity, it's the intimacy, it's the delicacy, knowledge of men and women. And I kept seeing it over and over again, which is, you know, we always talk about that anyway. Uh, I, do disagree, I disagree, though, with the saying that, I mean, we one of the big themes on our podcast is how Austin is so masterful at writing characters that seem as if they were real people. But I disagree with it, especially Pride and Prejudice, with it being like everyday situations. Because, I mean, look, think of the things that happen. Like a girl from a not very, from a family of very little consequence ends up marrying like the, <laughs> the richest men in England. It's, it's not a fairy tale story, but there's that's not like by the common way. That's true. But in the in the very beginning of the book, though, and this is one of the things we were going to talk about is the depiction of country life and all the little bitchiness and all the little gossips and all the little rhythms of daily life are very well portrayed. So I would agree that the entire storyline is not necessarily an everyday kind of storyline, but um, she just keep away from the passions and murders and, and you yeah. know. That kind of but thing. This is, that's why you get invested because you spend time at the beginning establishing these characters as living in a very real world similar to your own, you know, if you were alive at that time. Um, but you establish these characters living in a world similar to your own, your own. It could be your world. And then when they do go off and have these experiences, you it is more believable and you are more, more emotionally invested yes. as a result. It's a lot like Lord of the Rings. Like when, it, sorry to go off on another um, fantasy tangent, but if we don't spend a lot of time in the Shire in the beginning to appreciate the life that the hobbits leave, the type the type of people that the hobbits are, it loses so much emotional impact as we follow Bilbo through his adventures and to see how he's changed upon the arrival home. If we don't understand what his life was like before. I completely agree with that. And I, I think the way it's so well done in uh, Pride and Prejudice is that it, it really surprised me to realize this. But when you do read the beginning for the like the first three chapters, the main characters and the people with the principal amount of dialogue are Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. Yes. And you think you're starting out as an author with this amazing character, Lizzie Bennett, and she's so funny and she's so witty and you're going to you're going to introduce her right away. But um, by holding back, I mean, she's in there, you know, but by holding back and establishing the character of her parents, you get an idea of what she's dealing with and you get a, the setting and you get the silliness and the bickering and the back and forth and the little concerns that they have. This is something that I mentioned to you that I thought would actually make a good separate podcast topic was how the Austin's novels, while each has a heroine, Many, and I, I'm not, I don't feel as if I at this point can go back and say all of them, but I can think of several off the top of my head. Many of them start by actually talking about the patriarch mm -hmm. of the family first. Mm -hmm. Like how in Persuasion, what is the first thing we hear about? It's um, about um, Sir Walter Elliott. Yeah, how he reads his, the book and talks about his noble lineage and his family tree, and that's his favorite pastime. And so if you kind of think about in terms of the film, it's like we open on Sir Walter, or but we Sir open Walter's on. Walter's not the point, and in this, like no. we open on Mister and Missus Bennet. <laughs> That's why in um, we we're just talking about in the Jane Austen book club where she's trying to read this romantic book to Dean, but she starts on the first page and it's all about Sir Walter. So that's yeah. exactly that's exactly your point. I mean, that's so funny. And 
it's true in Sense and Sensibility. We talk about the dad dying. Right. And it's, in Mansfield Park, isn't it the same thing? Yes. Too? It's Miss Mariah Ward and she gets married to who? Sir Thomas. And his wealth sets the scene. So I'm wondering if this is like a subconscious, um, I mean, we talk about Austen as a feminist and as feminist literature and things like that because they feature these, you know, quote, strong female characters um, of their time. But all of the books start with a, a male focus. Well, Emma and um, Northanger Abbey are the exceptions. Okay, Emma, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich. Right. And then no one would have supposed Catherine Moreland born to be a heroine. But um, I would say those are two of the more comic books. And uh, when when we're taking when looking at this this trend, it's more than you might suppose that the focus is not on the heroine. Yeah, I wonder. I'm sure someone with. Um, Actually, let me just throw it out to the readers. Readers, if you have a theory or an idea as to why Austen would choose, either consciously or subconsciously, to open her novels focusing on one, the older generation, and or a male character, please feel free to write us in. And I think for a future podcast, this would be a really interesting discussion to have. Yes, because her, one of her entire points is how men run the world, men run their lives, the value of the, the world, woman. Men. <laughs> the value of the woman yeah. is tied to um, the value of the woman is, you know, and her position in the world is tied to the man. Yeah. And but that just, it really struck me on this reread. I was just, cause I think we did, we just do persuasion before this was the last Austin book. that we uh -huh. Yeah. So I was just, you know, cracked it open first paragraph. Oh, okay. Here we are talking about Mr. Bennett again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 And um, I have never noticed that before. I mean, it's nor did, nor did I, and it's funny. Um, and, you know, they're even dependent on the entire first chapter is how dependent they are on mm -hmm. Mr. Bennett visiting Mr. Bingley and deciding who's going to be in their world and who's going to be in their yeah. social circle. And he really yanks their chain, you know, um, and this is something pretty important. I mean, not only Mrs. Bennett thinks it's important, but the girls are also very interested. Remember, they it says in the book, they, they, they uh, attacked him with barefaced supposition or they... They tried to get it out of him with distant surmise. Yeah, they had all these different strategies. <laughs> yeah. And then he finally, he finally does this whole thing where he's like, what are you talking about? You know, do you, you know, you can introduce him to Mrs. Long or whatever. And they're mm -hmm. like, you know, nonsense, nonsense. Um, which is a, of a piece with him making fun of Mrs. Bennett, but um, also a little bit sporting with something that's very important to them and a little bit unfair to like not tell them about it and then being like you idiots I already visited yeah. <laughs> whatever you know what if people don't read the book if they just rely on the miniseries I really feel like you're not doing yourself a disservice because the miniseries is beautiful and awesome but there's so much more depth of character in the novel and Austin is perfectly willing, and this is a quote from an article I read in Slate's, and I don't remember the author. It may have been Adele Waldman again, but she's perfectly willing to tell and yes. not show. Yes. And so she's perfectly willing to say he was a man of quick parts, um, sarcasm, caprice, odd, you know, and his wife couldn't understand his character. However, she had mean understanding, and, and so... Um, but she's she's also established that, but she sort of like sums it up for us in this nice nice little bundle in a funny way to her, you know, and her solace was visiting in news. And that sweeps us into this world where what do they do? They visit and they have a lot of news like they, <laughs> they talk about. And one of the things that struck me and I actually made a note about it is when they are talking in these early chapters about what happened at the ball 
or whatever. And then the officers come and the kind of things they talk about, like Lydia's like, oh, mama, did I not tell you? My Aunt Phillips says that uh, Captain Carter and Denny are usually seen outside Cole's library or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's not a piece of information that I would necessarily be telling you today because we all have Netflix. So, you know, like, I'm like, yeah, guess you have to remember, these people had nothing to do, especially yeah, the women, especially yeah. the women. They yeah. have no opportunity, you know, like Emma Thompson says, she added to the script and sensibility. She just full out says, you know, I don't have any options like you do. What are they supposed to do all day? They don't, so, they don't have a governess. They don't do screens. They don't have a piano. So they just sit around and gossip. At the end of the, the book, I'll just mention that um, it's talking about Elizabeth and, and uh, Darcy comes in and then she's embarrassed and she has to avert her eyes. So it says she goes back to a work with the, with the diligence that her work did not often command or something. I'm sure that Darcy is the type to walk around the house nude. <laughs> oh, as yeah. like a power play. Like as soon as he hits Kimberly, like the pants come off. Um, and he well, just wants to be free <laughs> and just be himself. And it's like, what? I own this place. What? That's certainly the way Davies interpreted it, didn't he? I'm not oh, Kimberly. that was not even. Everyone blows that so far. That is purely supposed to be symbolic of a baptism. Hello, yes. an ablution. But uh, you know, it, he, it's actually weird. He dives into that scum pond, like basically fully clothed. Yeah, in his buckskin. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think those pants are going to stand the, that test. Of, yeah. Oh, there must have been a lot of chafing when he was walking back to the house. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> okay, moving on. Let's <laughs> talk about, you know, but however, that is a very real world detail, which Austin is known for, but not necessarily the physicality of that. <laughs> so, um so yeah, so what happens is that for the first four chapters, we're just establishing the nonsense, establishing the nonsense of Elizabeth's life. And then we wind up at this ball where we sort of hear about her spirit and her wit almost for the first time because, um, well, Mr. Bennett doesn't mention it, but we see it for the first first time in that she gets insulted. In the very beginning of the book, Mr. Bennett makes very clear that he thinks his three younger daughters are of no use at all, and the two are slightly more valuable, but Lizzie's his favorite. And I think they full out tells us that. Oh, yeah. I must throw in a good word for my little Lizzie. You know, she has a little more wit than the rest. They're all silly and ignorant like the other girls. But yeah, so we we start to see her her spine and her spirit, um, I think, you know, almost for the first time when they're at that ball at Netherfield together. And what was so interesting for me, so I actually read the book all the way through, and then I started again from the beginning, and I was in love with Darcy at the end, as you always are, and then you go back, and it's like this bracing, you know, you you walk into the freezing wind of his his pride and his standoffishness. He really does come across. It's a, a jerk. Yeah, but this is what's so great, is you, oh, I don't know how she does it, but she makes it clear even to a modern reader a lot of things that happen to this book plot wise could be kind of confusing to the modern reader especially the whole Lydia Wickham thing um but even for someone who's not of that time period it is very clear that his manners are not appropriate and everyone agrees yeah you see him as a jerk but you also can just see him as just like he's not a one-note character even from the beginning no like that jerk (laughs) he he does have that he does have that conversation with Bingley where he's like, you know, I it'll be a punishment for me. And he's a jerk. And I mean, he turns around and catches her eye and then turns back to him and says, she's tolerable, I suppose. And then 
that is just no matter if you're shy or what that's just a douchey thing to do yeah I mean he's so hung up on his importance and everyone else's he's so hung up really on his disinclination to it it would it would be embarrassing for him to talk to any of them yes and not and because he's I think truly because he's shy but also because he's being a jackass and he he's getting away with this behavior but it's funny to read the description of him uh when he comes into the room and the report circulates of he's having 10 he has ten thousand dollars a year or dollars ten thousand pounds a year and you're like wait a minute did he just walk in and say i have ten thousand pounds a year (laughs) you know what really happened is that the servants were gossiping oh totally the gossip ran around the room and um, and then you 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 hear you, I think it literally says the tide of his popularity was turned when he was found to be proud and to be above his company. And then not 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 all of his great estate in Derbyshire, Derbyshire could change could save him. So he's no longer seen through this rose colored lens of rich guy. He he's such an ass that Hertfordshire uh, knows what's up. And they're like. Being from a small town too, I think there's just like Mrs. Bennett has, where she's like, "We dine with four and twenty families." There's mm-hmm. a little bit of defensiveness, even like there is today. Oh, and for so sure. For someone yeah. um, toffee and posh to come into um, this world and be above his company really would be a black mark against. But him. they walked in, and everyone wanted to like all of them. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because they're. Yeah. They was telling me the other day we were talking about. Um, genres and as, as we do we sit down and talk about literature um <laughs> and this is bayard everyone bayard my boyfriend not my bay um and we were talking about this and he says well there's basically someone once said there's only three plots and one of them is a stranger comes to town oh. and in um hardfordshire they all want to like you like you're not really gonna blow it it's really hard to blow it among these people because they're just very they are very welcoming it seems like yeah. Uh, but as soon as you started talking to him, everyone was like, oh, no. Oh, no. He loses all his, his goodwill by forsaking the forms of introduction. There, there even is a passage where Mr. Bennett is like, do you consider the forms of introduction and the stress laid upon them? Is, is it nonsense or whatever? And this is what Darcy does. He, he forsakes the form of introduction. He forsakes mm-hmm. the ability to make a good impression. And um, just because he's so above his company and and, and Miss Bingley, you know, when they're at Sir William Lucas's, comes up to him and she's like, I can guess the subject of your reverie. I mean, it's pretty obvious to not only his friends, but to everybody that he's hanging around thinking these people are stupid. But if you yeah. asked him at this point, if you asked him at the beginning of the novel, like, don't, and Bingley pretty much does, you know, don't you think you're being kind of ridiculous and snobby? And he's like, oh, no, this isn't my personal feeling. Like, this is just because of my station because of the, the Darcy family name. Like, it's not me. It's not that I have pride so much as for me, but it's of what I represent and my family and who I am within that hierarchy. He, as Charlotte Lucas says, if she may so express that he has a right to be proud. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so it's, it's not like he, he wouldn't, I don't think that um, Darcy believes at the beginning of this book the reason why he's so haughty and proud and all that. I don't think it's because he thinks he's the shit, it's but it's because of who, everything that he drags around with him. He's carrying Pemberley around with him. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. And then once you go to Pemberley and you see what sphere he stepped out of, it at least makes it a little bit more intelligible. 
But also, that's one of the great things about this book is that, and we've touched on this before, I know I have, is that Lizzie and Darcy both make a lot of changes through the things they learn about themselves by interacting with each other. And they both have a huge amount of self-awareness. And this is this reread, actually, because we always know about Darcy's character changing for the better. But Lizzie's character changes a lot. And there's a lot of self-awareness and discovery and things like that that goes on for her explicitly through kind of monologuing and thought-a-logging, I guess. I don't know what you would call it. Interior monologuing. Yeah. Um, where she realizes yeah, she just her own faults. Yeah, and she, she starts to rethink how she has viewed herself and people around her yeah and Austin gets away with just explicitly saying Lizzie realized this and she felt this and she felt how silly she had been or whatever Mm -hmm. which also like necessarily is is not the form we follow today like there's a joke on Futurama which Kevin likes to reference if you know the show Futurama it's a comedy like the Simpsons but it's in one episode where somebody proclaims I'm angry. And then another character says, you can't just have a character say how they feel. That <laughs> makes me feel, you know, irritated or something. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, the, the masterfulness in which she does that, but I don't want to get too far away because I wanted to say to your point about Darcy being aware of his pride, but also other kinds of pride and vanity. And, and maybe you're right about thinking like he's not, he's aware of false pride and he wants to keep himself from false pride. And, and you know, is that, is that um, conversation they have, which I believe is cut out of every adaptation, which is Bingley talking about uh, how he's a fast writer, right? So he leaves out half the words and blots the rest. Oh, oh, I'm so glad you brought this up because that was one of my favorite passages. And I emailed you right away when I came across it. Yeah, well, he calls Bingley, well, I, I don't think he, he necessarily means to call Bingley out, but this is the essence of Darcy's character is he gets to the heart of how people are nonsensical. I mean, he can't see his own nonsense necessarily, but he, mm-hmm. he sees pretension and affectation. And he's like, you know, um, that's an indirect boast because the quality of doing something fast is always much prized by the, by the possessor, no matter how careless it, you know, the product of it turns out to be. It's an indirect Do you want me boast. to read you? You want me to read the actual quote? Yeah, please. Do you have it? Because it's in our, it's in our email. I just need to look it up. Because this is the, one of the first things I sent to you because yeah, I was exactly. reading that. The power of doing anything with quickness is always much prized by the possessor and often without any attention to the imperfection of the performance. So people who pride themselves on getting things done quickly don't really care that they're done badly. So what's great about this is I was reading in bed and I read this line to Bay and he looks at me and he says, well, yeah, because you want to make sure it's done perfectly or why even bother? Because we are both, this is us to a T. He is very patient and takes his time and does everything with precision you know, measure twice, cut once. And I'm more of a, let me just pick a spot on the wall, put in this nail and hang this picture and get it done. It's funny how you guys started talking about your um, your personal situation and how Pride and Prejudice brings out the little foibles of people and makes us analyze them. If, if there's one thing that's been important to me about Austin, it's how she makes me aware of my own affectations and she makes me aware mm-hmm. of my own vanity. But and, you know, so here, here is what Darcy said. I want to read what Darcy says about this. So, you know, Bing, Miss, Miss Bingley is saying, oh, Darcy, you write so well. You write such charming long letters. <laughs> she says, it is a rule with me that a person who can write long letters with ease cannot write ill. 
And Bingley says, that will not do for a compliment to Darcy, Caroline, because he does not write with ease. He studies too much for words of four syllables. Do not you, Darcy? <laughs> My style of writing is very different from yours. Oh, cried Miss Bingley, Charles writes in the most careless way imaginable. He leaves out half his words and blots the rest. My ideas flow so rapidly that I have not time to express them, by which means my letters sometimes convey no, no ideas at all to my correspondents. Your humility, Mr. Bingley, said Elizabeth, must disarm reproof. And here we get into it. Nothing is more deceitful, said Darcy, than the appearance of humility. It is often only carelessness of opinion and sometimes an indirect boast. So here we get into Darcy and his feelings about humility. And Bingley says, and which of the two do you call my recent little piece of modesty? The indirect boast, for you are really proud of your defects in writing because you consider them as proceeding from a rapidity of thought and carelessness of execution, which, if not estimable, you think at least highly interesting. The power of doing anything with quickness is always much prized by the possessor and often without any attention to the imperfection of the performance. When you told Mrs. Bennet this morning that if you ever resolved on quitting Netherfield, you should be gone in five minutes, you meant it to be sort of a panegyric of compliment to yourself. And yet, what is there so very laudable in a precipitance which must leave very necessary business undone and can be of no real advantage to yourself or anyone else? Nay, cried Bingley, this is too much to remember at night all the foolish that things that were said in the morning. I love that. That saying, is one Michael. of the best. Yeah, that is one of the <laughs> best quotes from the book. And I I just love that. I cannot be held accountable for the foolish things. <laughs> it's not fair. Like, that's how I live my life. Right. Uh, you can't come you can't come back at me with something I said two hours ago. That's like <laughs> forever. <laughs> And yet, upon my honor, I think that Bingley I, comes across very well in the novel as well. He, he does. I mean, in the mini, they make he him said, look well. He just says, "I believe what I said of myself to be true, and I believe it at this moment. At least, therefore, I did not assume the character of needless precipitance merely to show off before the ladies." And that so, so Darcy is sort of trying to poke holes in everybody, thinking yeah. this this is pretension, when actually Bingley's just a good guy, like you were saying. He's such yeah. a sweetheart. And I like those discussions too because they show that he can hold his own with Darcy and like verbally banter. Um, <laughs> Although he does end the um, the argument by saying, "Arguments are too much like disputes. Please defer yours until I'm out of the room." Because he doesn't like this conflict. Well, he, he does not like confrontation, right? Yeah, like many people, he just does not want to have any kind of confrontation. And he'd Darcy's rather just leave. It. Yeah. Darcy's all about it. He's like, bring it. Like, I will make, he's like an internet troll where he's like, I'm going to make this point to death and anything you say, I'm going to. And then when um, Bingley is like, well, uh, you know, they're talking about whether Bingley would stay or whether, we, whether he would ride off or whether he could be persuaded to stay. And Bingley is like, if Darcy was not such a great tall fellow in comparison with myself, um, and is basically implying that Darcy's just physically intimidating. So he physically yeah. intimidates Bingley into doing what he's on. And it actually offends Darcy, which is really funny that he, he thinks like his argument, it's implied that his wise arguments are perhaps not even enough. And it's really just that he's a scary guy and an intimidating guy, which he is. And that's something he doesn't want to think about himself, but it is definitely true. Yeah. 
Anyway, sorry. One other like, thing I wanted to say we're about spending things. a lot of time talking about Darcy's character, but I think that's because the book tells us so much about Lizzie. Yes. Like we know her, especially by the end. You know her. We've been inside her head the entire time. So what we know of Darcy, we just have to glean from these peaks. Yes, these little peaks into his mind. And every yeah. once in a while, the narration will shift to what he's feeling. But it's such a small mm -hmm. um, part of the time. And every once in a while, I find it delightful when we go into Charlotte's head, too. Mm -hmm. There yeah. are a couple of mm -hmm. times we do. But there's one other thing. And we were talking about how Bingley is so great. And, and he really is. Um, there's one part where Mrs. Bennett visits. And she's talking about Charlotte Lucas. And she's like, oh, Charlotte Lucas is so plain. And he's like, she seems like a very pleasant young woman. Right? Mm -hmm. So he refuses to join in the bitchiness. Whereas his sisters, on the other hand, are constantly laughing. They even laugh about their friend Jane and her vulgar relations and her uncle who lives in Cheapside. Let me ask you a question, if I may. Yes. Why do you think that, and this is something that Lizzie wonders as well when they leave, why do Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst reach out so much to Jane? They don't want their brother marrying her at all. Uh, they basically do everything they can to keep them apart once they leave Netherfield. So why do they bother to strike up a close friendship, the pre like the pretense of a close friendship with her at all? I think it's a couple of things. The first is I think they're bored just like everybody else. Yeah, that's what they're probably to come up with. bored with themselves. But the other thing is, in the tradition of Asa, nobody is an evil, you know, sort of villain. And... Um, I think in the beginning, Carolyn just, Caroline, rather, just actually really liked Jane and was like, what a sweet girl, want to hang. Yeah, they liked, they just actually like her. But then when it becomes clear that Bingley is very attached, then it kind of turns the tide, I guess. Yeah. Well, and it was always quite, it was always a little superficial. Like when Jane is sick at Netherfield and they're like laughing about her vulgar relations and then with a they're renewal so of tenderness. to her face. And yes, yeah, a renewal of tenderness. And and then they're like, oh, I hate being ill. And they, they solace their anxiety with duets after supper, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that might be what actually, so it, kind of in my own head, I picture them as genuinely liking Jane and considering her their friend until she gets sick. And then when she is sick and there the whole time at another having to stay at Netherfield and then Lizzie shows up and it's clear that Bingley and Darcy are interested in these yes. two other ladies. Like to me, that's kind of when the tide turns mm -hmm. and the, they're, it's not a genuine friendship anymore. Yeah. Would you say that's accurate? You're on my territory. I would completely yeah. agree. The green eyed monster then appears. Yes. And Carolyn is like, okay, I am sure she regrets ever making that friendship and sending that invitation and jane even says too she's like i can safely say that every advance to intimacy began on miss bingley's side and mm -hmm. um, for her to then get cut you know when she's in london is especially the sting you know when, when her two-facedness disingenuousness comes and out. let us not forget that jane is overwhelmingly considered the most beautiful oh yeah young lady in the area and so to the to miss bingley that would probably make her oh like, hot shit best, socially right yeah. so yeah so, like i'm gonna become friends with her if i'm gonna yeah. pick one person here to socialize with i'm gonna pick the most attractive and i mean the hypocrisy of the two bingley uh sisters 
is really kind of um, always on display, even when they're, you know, it even says like, oh, they were, fr they were from a respectable family from the north of England, a circumstance that was more fully impressed on their memories than the fact that their fortune had been made by trade. That's so the thing, like, they're such bitches. Like, they're being well reached too. They need to... They are, they are, and they're, and they're laughing about Bingley. They're laughing about Sir William. Oh, these like vulgar people, and uh, they, that's. Well, I, I like they're how we draw that. I like how we draw that similarity with them, and then also the younger Bennett sisters. They're both kind. They're all awful, but at least Lydia and Kitty or Mary are kind of awful in a much more benign kind of way. Yes, and <laughs> they have no malice. Yeah, Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst are just kind of like cruel. Yes. They're mean and, girls. And affected. And I mean, when you contrast that with what's up with Sir William, he was elevated to the knighthood and it made him civil to all the world. That's an affectation too, but it's a very benign one. It shows like his heart is in the right place. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you talk when you talk about these other people who got rich, all of a sudden they're kicking down. So it shows that, you know, hand, how you handle your wealth is also a mark a marker of character. And certainly with Kath, Catherine de Bourgh, I mean, that's another, <laughs> you, you become overbearing, you take advantage of, of your station. So this is, I know this is jumping ahead, but I love when Austin describes, she's, the, oh, what is it? Like she acts almost like the magistrate of the county. Oh yeah. Exactly. Anytime there's a disagreement, she will show up and like <laughs> tell you how it's going to be resolved. And anytime she catches wind of any kind of problem in the, in the neighborhood, in the county, she like takes off and will go solve it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> them, scold them into harmony and plenty. Yes. Yeah. Well, I know that you had more stuff. Did we cover all the things that you wanted to talk about in terms of the country life? Oh yeah, this is the, the, that's the like scene that. with these little. Um, we didn't we didn't talk about one. Okay, one more thing that I love is when, right after the ball, the first ball where Bingley dances with Jane twice. Um, Mrs. Bennett shows up at this little uh, soiree they have at the Lucases to talk over the ball, and. Um, even though she has just been saying how plain Charlotte is um, and how nobody can admire her, she goes to Charlotte's face and she's like, what was it I heard that Mrs. Robinson said about Jean? And um, she forces Charlotte to repeat that this woman had had, had, um, had a conversation with Bingley where Bingley said, oh, Jane is the loveliest. There can be no two opinions on that point. Yeah forcing charlotte to repeat it and charlotte knows she's plain i mean obviously and and mrs bennett just wants to hear this again you know oh, she's just awful i mean she is just awful she's a comedic character in the book but she's just awful i, just I mean that kind of is really not nice <laughs> she's a comedic character okay what is the character in um in emma uh what is her name the the sisters that what she lives with her mother she's to take oh care miss of her Bates. yes thank you so it, she's supposed to be, I think, she's funny in the vein of Miss Bates, but while Miss Bates is pitiable and sympathetic, Mrs. Bennett is not in my mind. She's just awful. No, she, she does things like she's like, I hate Mrs. Long. She's a selfish, hypocritical woman, and I have no opinion of her. And then when Mrs. Long happens to comment, ah, oh, we will have it her at Netherfield at last, when she's talking about Jane, um, Mrs. Bennett comes home and she's like, I love Mrs. Long. Her mm -hmm. nieces are very prettily behaved girl, you know, like, and I just think um, she's an awful person. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's all about her family and what's best for her family. And well, and it, when Mr. Collins comes, the revelation in her, or the revolution, I guess I should say, 
in uh, she hates Mr. Collins. She can't understand the entail. She doesn't understand why it's fair or why anyone would take an estate that was entailed upon them. I mean, come on, mm-hmm. Mrs. Bennett. You would feel very different if the estate was entailed on you. Then you would love entails, you know. But, yeah, I mean, she's just so inconsistent. But then when he shows up and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm prepared to make your girls amends. And she totally gets that. She's not backward to credit what comes in the shape of a lover to any of them. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. You know, so it's this it's this um, malleability of her opinion and uh, based on what's best for her. She's very there's grasping. Of, there's kind of a post, I guess you could say a postmodern um, defense of Mrs. Bennett where, yes, all she cares about is marrying off her daughters, but that's because it's necessary for their survival and everything she's doing is to ensure that they will be taken care of. And I get that, but also she just cares about material things and this small part of their lives, you know? Well, it all comes back to her too, because what happens if they all get thrown out into the hedgerows, you know, and starve, she's going to be responsible for providing for these four, five girls, you know, her husband's I dead. Really, I don't even really see how, I mean, she kind of pays lip service to that, but all of her interactions are always just about, it's all just petty. Her focus is not on getting them married to secure their futures and make sure they're not poor because when Mr. Bennett dies, blah, 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 they could end up in the street and she wants everyone to be healthy and be happy. It's not even that. It's just the petty aspects of it. You're so right because what she she wants wants to lord it over everyone that her daughters are married. It's not that she wants them to be married so they'll like be, have lives and be healthy. It's that she just wants to be able to tell everyone Oh, you're so right. She wants to go to Lady Lucas and and her uh, sister Phillips Mm -hmm. and talk about how her daughters are married. And, you know, even when Lizzie gets married so rich, she wants to go and talk about she visits Mrs. Bingley and talks with Mrs. Mrs. Darcy. She she loves to lord it over people. I mean, you even see that at the the Netherfield Ball, right, when she's Mm -hmm. talking so loudly to Lady Lucas, who's yawning at the repetition of delights where she can't has no option to share in them, you know. Yeah. And um, and then Lady Lucas comes to her house to be like, offer her assistance after Lydia runs away. You kind of get the sense that um, she's coming to lord it over Mrs. Bennet. I think right? there's definitely a Mrs. Bennet, Lady Lucas, head to head frenemies. Oh my god! Yeah, oh my they god. are frenemies. You you so said that because I have all these notes when I was reading it through the first time. Is that frenemies is such a theme here? Frenemies. Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, Mrs. Bennett and Lady Lucas are these bitchy frenemies, Carolyn and Jane, and at least on Carolyn's side, and even Charlotte Lucas and Elizabeth, I mean, they never really become frenemies, but they have a break. When Charlotte their, I, accepts Mr. Collins, Lizzie full-on says, I don't know if I can ever respect her again the yeah. same way. Yeah. They have, it's over. And who else? Even Kitty and Lydia are sort of like frenemies. Oh, because- for sure. For <laughs> 100%. <laughs> but see, that's because they see their mother doing that. I mean, Lydia is basically a mini Mrs. Bennett, right? Mm-hmm. She sees that behavior from her mother. And so Lydia is constantly making Kitty feel like shit to make herself feel better. Oh, yeah. And then when she gets that invitation to, um, to, Mrs. to join Mrs. Boss, yes. Or, yeah, that's right. Brighton. Well, and the, the guys have more functional relationships, Darcy and, and Bingley do. They're. They're fast friends, even though they're so different. But oh, so we'd have to talk about Mr. Collins. 
and his arrival to the world of Hertfordshire. And this happens right after we sort of, as a reader, we get this glimpse into Mr. Darcy and things are heating up and, and Mr. Darcy and Lizzie are having banter and you're sort of getting interested in, in him as a person. I think as a reader, you get interested in him as a person. He's, he's, uh, he's got some depth, especially when you read the, the exchanges that they have. Then that fun is all over. And as a reader, you're forced to put up with this nonsense, Mr. Collins, and his goofiness. I will say he. This is one of the few characters where I cannot separate the actor. Oh from yeah, certainly the character. And I, don't you get so excited whenever you see David Bamber in in anything? You're like, that's, that's Mr. Collins. <laughs> <laughs> He's been in a lot of stuff too, and you're like, oh my god, Mr. Collins! And people look at you like you're crazy. They either look at you like you're crazy, or they go, yes, oh my god, because they know, they get it. Has anyone ever been more successful in being greasy and insane? Oh, I don't know. Maybe Alan Rickman. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they do some stuff with like the eating sounds with him oh, too. He's just which... like a sycophant. Like that's the only word I can kind of, it's just yeah. so. And then he's so, um, he thinks what what's, uh, okay. So one of Austin's themes is being polite considerate of others having empathy in your everyday social interactions and one thing he can't do is socialize or or grasp what the other person is thinking or feeling or what they even mean so when mm-hmm. he chooses to read to the ladies he chooses Fordyce's sermon oh I know and he's like this, I often what is it he says he says something like I often find that the people less the least interested in listening to this oh. are the ones that the, are just targeted towards or something like that yeah like read the room dude yeah we're gonna play here <laughs> and um then when he he makes this like long speech at the netherfield ball when he introduces himself to darcy and darcy's clearly like grossed out by him mm-hmm. and is like who is this guy and he's like goes back to elizabeth he's like oh yeah went great yeah he has no ability to understand where anybody else is coming from he's so involved with his own importance his own affectation he, well, he, he basically tells lizzie he goes i'm gonna go to, i'm gonna go, i'm gonna go talk to him and she's like, don't do it he goes, I'm, I'm gonna talk to him don't do it it's like no it's cool i'm in the clergy yeah and clergy being a member of the clergy like excuses him from all of these rules of society so, which is not yeah. true <laughs> Right, or so he seems to think, but it's this affectation of his importance. He's a mixture of fake servility and humility, which is an affect- affectation he thinks he has to have as a clergyman, you know? When but really he, he, th- really he is- does think he is the shit. Like, he yeah. is the the prideful person that thinks he is the shit. Yeah, yeah. he, he really is full of pride. And it's, uh, it's so true when he proposes to Lizzie. He's like, no one would, you wouldn't possibly refuse me. Financially, this is... You know, the best thing that's ever Oh my God. Okay. We need to talk about this proposal scene (laughs) because it goes, I read it to Bay, to Bayard while he was uh, doing something around the house um, one evening because it is so, oh, I don't even know the words to describe it. It's like enraging, but hilarious, but it goes on and on. Yeah, it really does. Because she keeps saying no. (laughs) And he keeps saying, uh you you know you it's so um it's i know it's the the way young ladies do it now where they you know pretend to, to say no and she's like would you just listen to what i'm telling you <laughs> and it just it makes me so mad because it's this perfect example of it's oh god and it's like even before this uh, this is why austin is so brilliant you guys i'm freaking out um <laughs> a woman says something 
and it is yeah. discounted. Yes, you can't even be and taken seriously. This is full on says she's like, I would much rather instead of thinking me, you know, delicate, I would rather you think me rational. Yeah. Because I'm standing here telling you I am not going to marry you. And he's and I just love completely bulldozing her her thoughts and her feelings, acting like she can't possibly be making this decision. Well, yeah, he's like, I know what's best for you. And then he's like, your father knows what's best for you. She's like, I got to apply to my father. Uh, I love her. She's like, maybe I should apply to my father, whose behavior at least could not, not be mistaken for the coquetry of an elegant female. Yes. Um, oh, God. It's just, it's so great how he refuses to see that she is standing in front of him as a, as a person with their own mind, capable of making a decision. And what's so hilarious about that, Maggie, is that's exactly the way Darcy goes to Elizabeth and proposes. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. thinks financially because it's so eligible, there is no way in the world he's going to get turned down. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a, an, a pretension that he has no deservingness of, just like Collins. That's she has it much better than I would, I would say with Collins. I would have just like full on. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like she just keeps telling him again and again. I, it's but, like, I don't know how else to tell you. And that the goes answer back to, is no. That's go back, that goes back to Elizabeth too, because she's so much smarter than everybody else around her. But mm -hmm. she takes pity on the dumb people around her. Like she's not going to like, she's not going to be harsh on them. She's going to come down to their level and try to make yeah. them understand at and we talked before that she, she, she's very smart and she'll quip and be snarky, but she never is mean, really, or cruel. I mean, maybe you could say in her response to Darcy in the proposal, but she was livid. I mean, that was very insulting. Oh yeah. Um, so, but even then, when she, she's like, I just don't know how else to tell you this, Mr. Collins. Like, she doesn't. Can you not? Okay, let me just say. Can you imagine if Mr. Collins had proposed to Miss Bingley? Right. <laughs> I mean, she would eviscerate him. Right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She would absolutely eviscerate him. And he would be left stand. He would not even be standing. He would be crying under the table like a little child because of the, <laughs> how she would treat him. She's like, I can I, And what she says is sort of almost um, a reference to him and his happiness, too, because she, she's like, I could not make you happy. You could not make me happy. And I'm convinced I'm the last woman in the world who could make you happy. Yeah. Like, this isn't going to work out for either of us. But, um, and then what does he do? He goes and immediately proposes to Charlotte Lucas after getting a little sweetness. Uh, that was so, but see, this is the thing. Charlotte knows what she's doing. Oh, yes. As soon and as so he shows up and she knows that Lizzie said no, she sees her opportunity. Yes, she does. Okay, hold on, because I made a note to myself that I wanted to read the passage where Charlotte meets him in the lane and what she had resolved to do and being like neither handsome nor romantic or whatever. So hold on just one second. Mm -hmm. Charlotte herself was tolerably composed. She had gained her point and had time to consider it. Her reflections were in general satisfactory. Mr. Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His <laughs> society was irksome and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, he would be her husband. Without thinking highly either of men or of matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only honorable provision for well-educated young women of small fortune, and however uncertain of giving happiness, must be their pleasantest preservative from want. This preservative she had now obtained, and at the age of 27, without ever having been handsome, she felt all the good luck of it. 
The least agreeable circumstance in the business was the surprise it must occasion to Elizabeth Bennet, whose friendship she valued beyond that of any other person. So um, it's so um, mercenary. It is so self-interested. But then when you read right before it, um, what happens with uh, Lady Lucas began directly to calculate with more interest than the matter had ever excited before how many years longer Mr. Bennett was likely to live. Oh my God, that was I love this with her frenemy. She's going to get, her daughter's going to get her frenemy's house. And she's like, how long till Mr. Bennett dies? Um, This is why it's not just, I mean, we can, not all the blame is on, I said Mrs. Bennett is awful and she is, but not all the blame is on her. We see enough of Lady Lucas to know that she's just invested in this. (laughs) They all are. I mean, mean, that's that's their rivalry, right? They're all looking to stay rich, to be rich and to stay rich. And even the rest of her family, it says the younger girls formed hopes of coming out a yes. year or two sooner <laughs> than they might otherwise have done. And here is the worst part. Here is the worst part. The boys were relieved from their apprehension of Charlotte's dying an old maid because of it course would they feel that way because they would have to support her financially. <laughs> and <laughs> so, also it's like embarrassing, right? Oh she, yeah. Like, okay. yes. I Isn't there also where Mr. Collins is like, yo, please don't talk about this because it's pretty embarrassing. And then as okay. soon as someone shows up, Mrs. Bennett is like, oh my God. To Lizzie, and she said no, and like she just tells everybody right away. They can't keep it quiet <laughs> at all. It lasts like ten minutes before they're just like gossip. Yeah, it's just it's all they do. It's terrible. Go read a book, that. lady. <laughs> they, they didn't have like um, bodice rippers back in the day, or she would have they been had gothic novels. What are you That's talking true. about? That's true. Yes. They don't need a bodice if you have a monk that can walk through walls or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, with his magic branch. Yes. Oh, man. Um, (laughs) Into Antonia's bedchamber. But (laughs) what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When they ask, when they ask Collins to read to them, right, they they produce a novel and he starts back because everything announced it to be from a circulating library. So mm-hmm. even, yeah, we get that little insight, but even the Bennett girls are like all about the Gothic romance. Yeah. Which I love. That's the only reason though. They probably just flipped the scenes with the set, the sex scenes. <laughs> I have like when finished. I was 16, I would go to the library and grab some romance books and like just sit in the library and like flip through to find the sex the scenes sex and scene. just read those. I have an admission that every time I read a book that has a sexy sex scene, after I finish the book, I go back and read the sexy sex Oh, yeah, scene. totally. That's the good part. Okay, yeah, okay. I'm glad I mean, you don't have to be embarrassed. Page. That's normal behavior. I, um, I've started to read these Miss Fisher's Mysteries, um, you know, the show. Oh, you're reading the books? Yeah, I'm reading the books. And um, as you know, in the show, she has a very active sex life. But in the books, it's like graphic graphic really oh, yeah maybe yeah. i need to read miss fisher's mystery <laughs> i'm so hooked on them i'm so bad that i'm not even waiting to get them from the library every time i finish one on my kindle it's like do you want to buy the sequel for 6.99 well and yes like, amazon i do, I, do. <laughs> so. maybe I, should, I love the show it's very cute um but maybe i should give these books a try hey when the show not to talk too much about the show but you know it does have a connection to austin a very tenuous one in that um there's an austin chapter in boise they invited me to come because uh, they saw my jasna res- registration come through so they invited me to come uh to their annual picnic but i was out of town 
but they did put me on their listserv. So after the picnic, somebody apparently had been talking at this picnic about Miss Fisher's mysteries and how much they loved them. So there was this huge discussion list going on about how amazing they were. And I remembered that you had showed me the first episode. So I went back and just devoured them all. I made Kevin sit and watch so many. And I'm sure he was like, oh. No, he uh, probably liked it. He, he was like, I can appreciate a good genre piece or whatever. So he was tolerant of it. But that man, that last episode came around and I was depressed. Okay, don't tell me. I didn't, don't spoil. Oh, okay. I thought you. Okay. Sorry. I thought no, you had seen girl, what, and what time do I have to watch all that? No, I Maggie, had to catch up on Supergirl this summer. <laughs> you showed me the first episode of Miss Fisher's Mysteries when I was still living in Virginia. So you have had a year. So. Okay, I but I had to catch up on Supergirl, and I've been really busy <laughs> with work and other stuff. Like, I've been so stressed. Honestly, confession. I've been so stressed the past couple of weeks that I've basically only watched Great British Baking Show. Oh, the Great British Baking Show. That is my solve. It is my <laughs> therapy. I just drink wine. Actually, probably too much wine. <laughs> a healthy way to deal with stress. Um, and watch Great British Bake Off. And Great British Bake Off Masterclass. Nice. Because I just find it relaxing. Well, we have gotten to We have gotten to the Collins proposal. I know, but there's so much still to even talk about the beginning that we didn't. What did we didn't we really miss? I don't know. I just feel like there's so much every page. Okay. Let me break out my notes. <laughs> Let me break every out page. my notes. Oh, I want to read something. Let's okay. See, hopefully my Kindle didn't just die. I keep getting a your battery is running low notice. I would like to read when Lizzie is first talking to Wickham, I would like to talk about how Wickham describes Darcy because I think that it is both very unfair, but I think it is also fair. And you can see what you think, okay? We didn't talk about Wickham at all. Oh my God. I know. Okay, so here's what we'll say. Almost all his actions may be traced to pride and pride had often been his best friend. It has connected him nearer with virtue than with any other feeling. But we are none of us consistent, and in his behavior to me, there were stronger impulses even than pride. Can such abominable pride as his have ever done him good? Yes. It has often led him to be liberal and generous, to give his money freely, to display hospitality, to assist his tenants and relieve the poor. Family pride and filial pride, for he is very proud of what his father was, have done this not to appear to disgrace his family, to degenerate from the popular qualities or lose the influence of the Pemberley house is a powerful motive. He has also brotherly pride, which with some brotherly affection makes him a very kind and careful guardian of his sister. And you will hear him generally cried up as the most attentive and best of brothers. So I think that's really interesting because he's going about this to diss Darcy and talk about how everything he does is informed by pride. But almost all of the things that he says there are actually very good qualities. He is liberal with, in, with his funds. He helps his friends when they need financial help. He helps his tenants. He's very um, careful to make sure that they're all taken care of. He loves his sister. He's the best brother. He's proud of the man his father was. I mean, these are all And those qualities. are the things that when Elizabeth goes to Pemberley, those are the things she hears from the from Mrs. Reynolds, the housekeeper, and mm -hmm. thinks, wow, maybe this guy is a good guy. So you're absolutely right. She's hearing all this stuff, and it's just wasted on her because of her prejudice against him. And the thing is that Wickham doesn't even understand that the things that he's saying, those are good qualities. He's saying it like it's awful. 
Yeah, like he's a bad, like, oh, he's such a jerk. Like, oh, he does all these great things, but it's only out of mm-hmm. pride. But I mean, that doesn't, what is, what is it that Darcy actually says? He says pride is not always, oh, when he's where dancing there's, with Lizzie. Where there's a real superiority of mind, pride will always be under good regulation. Yeah, so it's not, I mean, pride is one of those words where it can have both negative and good connotations and if being proud of your family name and of wanting to live a good life and being proud that you are you know the not the overseer what's the word I'm looking for because they like the landlord yeah you know like he is proud to be a good landlord and so he will act this way I don't see that as a bad thing no I you know what you're right and even today you know being proud of yourself is something that is encouraged you know you should celebrate your successes and it does help you to move forward and to try new things if you're like oh I'm uh, you know I did this great thing at work or I got promoted you know I'm actually I'm proud of myself you know that's not something to be discouraged it's something to be like yeah you deserve to feel this pride you know you worked hard yeah, um, or if you like you worked really hard because you wanted to get that promotion because you're proud that your family has come from a long line of people who have kind of held a similar position. And so you want, you know, if everyone in your family went to Yale and you're super proud that everyone in your family went to Yale, so you work your ass off to get into Yale. That doesn't mean the things that you did to get into Yale, assuming they were all legal, uh, like those are good things, <laughs> you know, like it can inspire us yeah. having that kind of it's not even so much, I don't know, maybe this is an older interpretation of pride and the word means something different. But rather than pride, I would say it's almost like a motivating, it's motivating and a legacy. Yes. And also fear of being the weak link, you know? Right, right. Well, you don't want to be the person that brings down Pemberley. It has these good effects. Um, but I think one of the implications too is that he doesn't really feel liberal at his heart. Right, it's um, just a pretense. It's right? a pretense because he wants to keep up appearances. And I think that's he wants what we that... getting at. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I think that what we find out when we go to Pemberley is that the truth is that is the type of person he is. That is the type of man he is. Yeah, yeah, it's not just a pretense. Right. And for whatever reason, being there and hearing it from his housekeeper and also hearing how he's good-tempered mm-hmm. and how he's you know, she's never had a crossword from him since he was four years old or something yeah. like and that. And it's not just the housekeeper. They also ask around the town. Yeah. <laughs> or Lizzie does. And everyone, right. she talk, everyone she talks to in Lambden um, around Pemberley is like, oh, yeah, he's great. Well, they're like, they, you know, they had nothing to accuse. They hang out with says, us. Yeah, but- says, yes. Well, exactly. I think it says they had nothing to accuse him of but pride and pride he probably had, or at least it would be imputed by a, t- a little town where he did not visit. Like he was mu- a place he was much absent from or something like that, because he's just not going to go to the inn of Lambton yeah. to like have and be beer. like, you know, hey, Anne, what's up? You know, like, let me have yeah. some grog at your tavern. You know, like he's not going to do that. Um, also, that would probably be inappropriate just because he's kind of their employer. Yes. If you sure land in the tree world, yeah. everyone is basically paying him rent. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're, it's be kind of weird, right? Yeah. For your landlord to like go down and have a drink with everyone. Like just yeah. kind of awkward. Yeah. And just not Plus, appropriate. He has these, these posh manners that, of course, they w- yeah. wouldn't have. And it would just be uncomfortable for everybody. Yeah. So. Wickham, though, that, that scene where you're talking about where he's talking about Darcy and giving her all the straight poop on what Darcy's really like and what, you know, like all this BS, 
um, this is not, I am not the first person to point this out. Um, and the first time I read the book, I didn't even necessarily think, feel this way. But when I read the book this time, it was so obvious to me that he was saying, oh, I can never defy or expose the son of Mr. My, the old Mr. Darcy, while that's exactly what he's doing. Oh, yeah. He's so, but see, I did catch that. Let me tell you, I did catch that the first time. And it's another credit to Austin's ability to write where we 100% believe that this guy comes off as very affable and charming and everyone loves him and Lizzie just eats it up and we don't think she's stupid because of it. It's not like, oh, you idiot. Yeah. But as a reader, you know right away that he's two-faced and up to no good. At least I did. Like, the, this idea that he turns out to be a rake to me was, I remember when I first read this in, like, high school or middle school, like, it was not a surprise. That's good Good for you. I mean, because I, and I got duped a little bit, too, because a typical author will tr- give you a few signals as to well, whether, I think, a, oh, okay, sorry, go ahead. As to whether a character is good or bad, and when Wickham is introduced and he says something on only something about the possibility of it's being a wet night, but Lizzie thinks uh, the best speaker can render a, the most threadbare yes. subject interesting, and yes. so as a reader, you're like, oh, he's a cool guy. Yes. So then, when the, is it exactly. Lizzie does so then when all this stuff comes out you're very credulous and you're like yeah I hate that Mr. Darcy let's trash talk him and I it was lost on me I mean I had seen the movie before I had read the book so I knew he was a bad guy and maybe that was why I was not quite paying so much attention but it it seemed like a a natural like let me tell you about I'm gonna confide a secret in you and people love being confided in and feeling like they know what's up and that in it, you know enticed her too so she's just prejudiced in his favor by his appearance by his manners by his like wittiness or whatever and and I was sucked into that well let me clarify um I did not think that I didn't know the depth of how of his, his depravity. depravity um I didn't I didn't understand like the extent to which he's the villain of the piece I guess is the thing when you first meet him it's not like if it was a murder mystery, I'd be like, oh, he's the killer. Yeah, he's, he's the, the murderer. <laughs> you don't think, oh, he tried to seduce uh, Miss Bingley at 15 and then runs away with Lydia. Like, you don't expect that kind of behavior, right? No. Um, but I think that she does a really good job of kind of tel- not telegraphing because it's not obvious. It's not in your face. But anyone who, oh, he's just so willing to tell all this dirt. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's, yeah. It's, the, it's the two, it's the, um, the two facedness, I think, because he said, he does say, like you specifically said, oh, well, you know, I don't want to, he was a really good guy. I shouldn't spread it. And it's yeah. all the things that Lizzie thinks about later. Like yeah. He said he didn't want to talk about him, but then he told everyone. And in the book, it's like multi-page yeah. storytelling. And he said it would be up for Darcy to leave if he was uncomfortable, but then he didn't go to the ball. And that's also a huge hint. When she reviews um, that in her mind, it sort of bursts upon you. It's like, yeah. Well, I think she did a really good job of laying that groundwork. And I do yeah. remember re- being like, this guy's up to no good. You can just kind of tell by the way he just so is openly, readily and will speak of his misfortunes, I guess. I just don't trust people who- Here's the other thing, too. He doesn't know anything about her. So his decision mm-hmm. to trust her on site is another compliment to her that she takes to herself. Yeah. She's like, this guy clearly trusts me to tell me this. And he should because I, he can clearly tell I'm good people, just like I can clearly tell he's good people, you know? 
But yeah. she also realizes, just like she realized that he went after Miss King because of her oh, inheritance, yeah. that at the time, Lizzie was actually not that bad a prospect, right? Yeah. Well, Miss so, King has 10,000 pounds and Lizzie has 1,000 pounds, so. Yeah, but she, and I think Lizzie thinks to herself later, though, she's like, you know, at the time when he first met me, like, he anything would have been, like, a step up. To, to marry a woman, even with very little fortune, to marry a woman from a respectable family for him. She also says that, you know, she has that line, well, my younger sisters don't understand that handsome young men must have something to live on as, as well as the poor, you know. She's mm-hmm. made her peace with it or whatever. And then she realizes, wait a minute, when she hears Lydia say something similar, uh, like, oh, Wickham could never have cared about Mary King. Who could have about such a freckled, nasty, freckled little thing or whatever? Mm-hmm. She's like, that was the own, my own sentiment that I was harboring in my breast and fancied liberal. But – Here's the other thing, and I made a big note about this, and I'm also not the first person to make this point, but um, there's a massive, what Lizzie's struggling with, with that whole thing, with Mary King and him, is there's a massive inconsistency in allowable behavior for women of her class. Um, and she's even warned about Wickham. She's like, you could love him, you know, Miss, Mrs. Yeah, Gardner. Uh, that was such a great scene that I wish had been in the miniseries, too, because it's, it gives you a lot of insight as to her aunt, her aunt's character. Yeah, because um, her aunt is like, you could love this guy, but do not pursue it because he can't support you. So yeah. if it's bad, the book is saying, you know, these people who are chasing after Darcy because he's rich or chasing after men be- just because they're rich or they have money, these people are not morally right. They're they're not morally right. This is not right, right in the head. What makes it so morally right to reject a guy because he doesn't have enough money when the yeah. tables are turned? But that is the whole thing that Austin is saying. She's like, okay, I can't chase a rich guy because he's rich. That would be wrong. We all acknowledge that. Why can't I get with a poor guy? Or, or why is it allowable for me to reject a man I love because he's poor? Why yeah. is that something that everybody praises? Why is that? It, it, just like Anne Elliot, just like, um, you know, uh, uh, Eleanor from Sense and Sensibility. These, this, these women are trapped. On one side, they'd be um, censured to chase a rich man. On the other side, they'd be censured to make a match with a poorer man. So it's a big catch-22, and that's the frustration. That's what's causing – one of the things causing Lily, Lily Lizzie to be um, inconsistent, morally inconsistent on this point. Sorry um, for the and, and, long you know, she kind of Well, she kind of flatters herself a bit where – she thinks that, well, you know, I don't have a lot of money, so he must have just really liked me for me. Yeah. Kind of. I don't know. I see Wickham as kind of a, always having a, multiple side projects going at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, not a lot of money, respectable family, good to look at, good to talk to, let me keep her in my back burner just in case nothing better comes along. All of his intrigues are honored with the title of seductions after he goes away. Well, oh, and another thing I was going to say is that about how Wickham, you know, I had hints that he was not a great guy. Yeah. At this point in the book, you know that Darcy's the romantic lead. I mean, come on. Yes. <laughs> so you, know, you know that Wickham is not going to be in it for the long haul. So when he's all over Darcy. You're like, wait a second. You know something has to be up because Darcy's the romantic lead. So that's another kind of, but that, that's more of a, if a reader is familiar with this type of story insight. Well, you know, I don't know, because at this point you do still kind of dislike Darcy, but you also, you're right. You have gone into his head and you, you read the part about how he's never been bewitched by any woman huh. so much as he has been by her. 
Okay, let's talk about the ball and let's talk about when the Bingleys leave and then back to you. Yeah. So the ball is when we have 100% confirmation that Darcy's super interested in Lizzie because he asked her to dance. And she accepts him before she knows what she's doing, uh, which is sort of interesting. You know, when you just get caught in this social situation where you're sort of like, okay, uh, Okay, so this is a stupid side tangent, but I get really uh, nervous when I order food. It's like a, I don't know, it's like a problem ingrained from early childhood where I'm afraid to talk to waiters. I'm a very strange person. It's very strange. But because of that, if they ask me a question about, oh, do you want this or do you want that? I'll answer at random because I'm like nervous. And so I wind up ordering stuff I don't want all the time. Um, so yeah, that's how she gets roped into dancing with Mr. Darcy is because of uh, my problem where she has like this blank mind. Um, but anyway, she dances with him and they have a very fraught encounter, which is very sexy. Um, you know, the tension, that's the true Darcy Lizzie, like, ah, oh, these crazy kids, they're ruining everything, um, where she wants to hurt him because she's enamored with Wickham. And she's heard the story about Darcy being a bad guy. So she has all these little um, little digs. I mean, do you want to talk about them bantering? Because I don't really have any notes on that. I think everybody knows. Uh, no, I just think it's really wonderful to read. Yeah, it is. It's one of the best passages. Where she's like, oh, we were just farming a new acquaintance in town. Where it's, and, well, it starts off like, and I, the miniseries is a great job of this, by the way, where it's just kind of super awkward because no one's saying anything. Yes. She's kind of like, okay. She's like me, where she basically says everything she's thinking. And let's say, like, this, this is an awkward silence. Like, one of us should probably say something. Yeah, she's sort kind of, of acknowledging out loud she doesn't care to talk to him. She doesn't have anything to say to him. She doesn't want to be there. And it's sort of a way of punishing him almost for asking her to dance. So she's like, okay, you know, I know you're a jerk. You're not going to say anything. So I'm going to poke the bear. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna poke at it for my own amusement, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, then they get into this whole thing where she's like, "Oh, I'm trying to sketch your character," which is another thing. Her 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 prejudice is blinding her from doing that, right? But the other thing is, he's not really helping her to understand. He's getting poked at, but he's not responding in a way that really helps her, which is sort of interesting about him. Um, I think it's his again pride that prevents him from kind of when people say things like that to him or misconstrue his character, like he doesn't really take any pains to correct them. Yes, it is his, you're right. It is his pride. He's like, I don't have to condescend to defend myself. My actions should speak for themselves. And he doesn't know he's not going to tell the truth about Wickham because it involves his sister. And that's obviously not for public consumption, but I think a lot, I mean, Bingley is kind of the only person I can think of where he talks to, and Bingley says something and he'll respond and there will be an actual, like, let me clarify what I mean by this. Mm-hmm. Like, he the, cares like the letter writing exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but with other people, he's just kind of like, okay. Yeah, whatever. I don't care about you. Yeah, I don't care. He, you does, he does have that one comment, like Mr. Wickham has the happy ability to keep mm-hmm. friends, whether he's equally capable of keeping them. But he's not going to be like, you don't, you don't know the full story. Yeah, he's like, wronged my family, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, okay. He's just going to toss off some snotty comment and leave her to interpret it, which makes it very hard for her to be doing the character sketching. And um, he does leave offended. 
but then he has this tolerable, pow- powerful feeling in his breast towards her, which directs all his anger towards Wickham. And- uh, but he still doesn't do anything to try to rectify it. And he doesn't even get the point that she thinks he's done something to blast the prospects of Mr. Wickham because then when he proposes and she rejects him, he's like, where is this coming Stopped. from? Yeah. You know? And like, he, yeah. most people, if they got any kind of hint that, you know, yo, the whole county thinks you're an asshole. Like most people would probably be like, oh, damn, like maybe I should try to be a little nicer. Defend myself. Or, or yeah, like, you know, but he just is not, he knows and he doesn't care. He thinks it's beneath him. Yeah, exactly. What do I care what peasants think of me? Yeah, well, and he looks back and he's like, <laughs> my, my behavior was wrong and intolerable. But yeah, but that's the big thing with the, the character changing, right? Is that then he is able to see by the end. By the end, yeah. That by he the end. did act in a completely inappropriate way. Because he thinks these people are beneath him. He thinks yeah. it's beneath him to defend himself. And um, it, it, it's kind of weird, but it, it does come out of that pride he's like well yeah i'm darcy i live in pemberley like yeah but again if you asked him he at the time he would say well it's not just me being prideful this is just the way it is this is the rules of society because of my position yes and i think at the end he does realize that he was wrong and that that's kind of like a smokescreen and not true and he is a creature of the fashionable world he is a creature of um behaviors and and sophisticated people versus unsophisticated people and and when he is first looking at elizabeth to make it clear to his friends that she's not attractive and he's not attracted to her one of the things it says was her manners were not those of the fashionable world Mm -hmm. she's almost um evaluating her at the beginning as to whether does this person fit into my world no she doesn't and then by the end he he's realizing he wants to fit into her world um, she shows him a better way, a way of empathy, a way of um, dealing with, you know, awkward social situations with grace and the world with grace yeah. and like, you know, and with wit and with fun. But the um, real secret is that his world isn't like that either. Look at all of the people that we know that exist in his world. Lady Catherine, who is one of the most horrible people and has the worst manners of anyone in the book. Uh, the Bingley sisters, you know, Mr. Bingley's great, but the Bingley sisters are terrible. Yeah. So the insights that we have, he and Georgiana are kind of the only upper crust people who you can stand. Yeah. The people and, in his and Colonel Fitzwilliam, and I think he also comes to see that too. Yeah, and Colonel Fitzwilliam, but but yeah, but the thing but I even love he, about- he's a second brother, a second <laughs> son. You know, he is not the head of the family. Right. The thing about um. Lady Catherine, too, that I love so much is that the people who are full of folly in Darcy's life are uh, parallel to the people who are full of folly in Elizabeth's life, right? Mm -hmm. Elizabeth has a younger sister who runs away. Well, Darcy's younger sister almost got seduced and running away with the same man. And then Mrs. Bennet has terrible manners and is vulgar and annoying. Well, guess what? Lady Catherine de Bourgh has terrible manners and is vulgar and annoying. So there's sort of like parallel casts of people in both of these people's lives, but he can't see the folly of these people. He's blind yeah. to it because part I of mean, that's he- a really good insight, Kristen. I didn't even think of that. That's a really, really good insight. Oh, um, and so when he throws it into her face, she doesn't <laughs> know those people yet, but basically the same thing could be said of them. It's just because they have money. Oh, I remember my point from earlier. My point from earlier was going to be that what we see in this novel um, is a lot of why people say that, you know, in, 
in this country, we struggle with this kind with racism and just this like skin color issue and country of origin. Whereas in the UK, um, a lot of people will say that there they struggle more with class distinctions. And I think that is mixed up a lot in the whole racism thing. But putting that aside, um, even here, you can see these like such clear lines in this very hierarchical class system. And to move among these was just not done. You know, I once was on a vacation in Bermuda when a Scottish couple was staying at the same uh, bed and breakfast with us. And this Scottish couple, um, bless their hearts, uh, one of the, we, we talked about many, many things, but one of the things that I said at one point, they were talking about the royals and how ridiculous it is. And I was saying, well, you know, here in America, because we have a classless society, we don't really have that royalty. So I think the reason that Americans devour tabloids about uh, Kate and Wills is that we don't have that, right? So we are going to be obsessed with people who do have royalty. And then she said right back to me, she's like, you know, you really do. You don't live in a classless society yeah, that's at true. all. I, wouldn't, I would have also said that to you, Christine. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I was just trying to counter the, the point that she was yeah. like, why are people obsessed with Kate and Wills in this country or in your country or whatever? But um, it was a short-sighted point in that I I didn't I didn't think about that. because, But I was just thinking in the Pride and Prejudice mold because I'm so obsessed with Jane Austen. I'm like, yeah, well, we don't have that, you know, like landed gentry, the plummy accent. We don't have, okay, the accent thing as much as Britain does, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you know, like this plummy accent versus posh voice or whatever. And uh, people like make immediate assumptions about you based on your, your accent. So anyway, to your well, point. Well, here's what I'll say. We don't have like strict, we don't have a history like the UK does of these kind of feudal and gentrified specific class areas. But here it's just as clearly divided by economics yeah as it is there i mean the kennedys people talk about the kennedys guess why because they were rich that was the that was the exact example that the scottish woman made to the kennedys yeah um but yeah this scottish couple was also really racist oh god <laughs> so, so it wound up being these very weird conversations anyway this, so this is gone off the rails um but but yeah, that's what they were they were struggling with too. I mean, everybody was like, you know, and this thing with the knighthood, you know, it's like the the king is deciding who are the quality people, and that meant a lot. And so, and you look, you, they look down on the Lucases, right? Because while he's Sir Lucas and she's Lady Lucas, they're not titles that they can pass on. They right. were just granted because he was mayor and gave like a really nice speech to the king, and it was right. like a a thing to like oh that was a great speech you know let, let you be known as sir lucas sir william yeah. lucas um there's nothing to pass on mm-hmm. it's just there it's like an obsession with this heredity and then he um, becomes upset sir william becomes obsessed with saint james and wanting everybody to go to saint james's court and so it becomes this this source of pride for him yeah. but it's really nothing is different about him from before he gave the address to the king, but he's been validated by an outside. It's all about being validated by this outside power that tells you you're worth more and he's worth more. And that's the stupidity that that they're trying to break out of. This all came across because we said we were going to talk about the ball, but I guess we don't really have a lot to talk about the ball. Just that. No, no, I do with Darcy. Jane and Bingley are very close. Everyone knows. And her family's super embarrassing. Yes. Okay. So the thing about the ball that I love is, you just have that feeling in the pit of your stomach where a knight turns. 
-hmm. you know, like a, a certain evening out, all of a sudden it goes off the rails and someone makes a racist rant in a, you know, in a modern day example with my yeah, Scottish Uncle couple. Uncle Bob gets drunk and goes on this like yes, horrible, people, embarrassing racist people rant at the dinner these, table and you're just like, oh God, yes, help me. You're like, when can I leave? And that's exactly what happens at the Netherfield Ball and we can all relate. And Mr. Collins making this bad speech, Mary make, you know, playing the piano very poorly. Um, you know, her mother talking at the top of her lungs about this very vulgar, you know, love of money. And their dad not doing anything to intervene. Oh, yeah. And their, da their dad insulting Mary in front of everybody, which is also really ill-judged and makes her feel even worse. And she's like, this, this night has turned into a smoking rubble. And yeah. then at the very end of the night... Uh, Mrs. Bennett maneuvers it so that their carriage is the last to be ordered. So they're this is so embarrassing. Oh. It is. It was so embarrassing where uh, the Bingleys are stuck with the Bennetts waiting for their carriage. And it's one of these, when will this night end? And the, the Bingley sisters are so pissed off that they have to be stuck with these horrible people. So they're like yawning and like being very obvious. Like we want you out of here. And uh, the Bennetts are just nattering on, you know, Lydia and Mrs. Bennett and, I think we can all relate to that too. <laughs> so that that set piece of the ball is uh, masterful in so many ways, but I really identify with that nonsense. It's just, and I mean, Dar it's it was so bad that Darcy even I believe references. <laughs> I can't write, quite remember if he references it in the letter or that's the, I'm thinking of the movie because they do the flashback. But she thinks back and she's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I can. Think, I think in see. his. I think in his letter, it's just kind of general, where he's like the yeah. impropriety that's demonstrated by all. I think, except Jane. Jane is the only one who doesn't embarrass. Right. Her. Well, and the other thing though is that um, when he says that he didn't think Jane was in love with Bingley, mm -hmm. that was Darcy's BS, and she calls him on that being BS. However, if you really did have that conviction, which he says that he did, you would not want your friend marrying these crazy people. So yeah. even though he did what he did was wrong, you can sort of sympathize with the fact that he didn't want his married to his, his friend to marry a mercenary woman who doesn't love him, you know, according to Darcy, and marry these like disgraceful people who will not help him in society. And um yeah, you know, when you think back to the Netherfield Ball, it's like these people are nuts. Yeah, you know. So. Well, I just that just kind of cracked me up that part where they're overstaying their welcome. Yeah, yes. anyone who's had like a, not we don't people don't have dinner parties anymore, but you know what I mean. Anytime you've had a party or had some friends over, there's always that kind of one person who will hang out because maybe they don't have anywhere to like anything else to do, or they just don't want to like go back home. And you're doing the dishes and they're standing there and you're like putting things away and finally you just have to be like, you should go. <laughs> <laughs> you have someone in mind. No, um, no. There's like, this has been several different um, circumstances no, I where I can no. remember. There's always just like one person. And sometimes it's me. I've definitely yeah. been that person. But I will yeah. tell the host. I'll be like, look, you know, there's nothing exciting going on at home. I'm going to hang out, but tell me when to leave. <laughs> and usually the, the way that you do is you help. Um, that, that's the way to kind of make it not awkward and weird is that you then help with the cleanup. Yes. Well, thank you for that tip, Margaret. So that was the ball. And then the Bingleys leave. And they actually, what I think is so interesting is that Jane is super emotionally affected by the fact that they leave. 
more than you. They've had shades of sense and sensibility to me. It did because she's actually she can't show it, right? She's so yes. mild, she can't show what she fe- is feeling. Let me just give one more thought. This idea because they use it a lot to describe her, even before the um, the ball. Like Jane is often described as mild, and I think that that is also a word that has kind of changed in meaning. Whereas now, it is almost like a negative. You say someone is like very mild in temper, meaning that they're you know how a lot of people rag on Fanny Price. Yeah. I feel like a modern way to say that would be like, she's just so mild, yeah, you know? yeah. but that's not what it means for Jane. No. Well, it means that she's just kind of always cheerful and um, is not going to make any waves and is a good listener and will give you her, you know, honest, kind advice. Um, she's and I, it, does, it doesn't mean she has no personality. Right. Is what I'm no. trying to get at. It's, she just has a very wonderful warm and more quiet personality I think well it would be considered for the gentle women of gentle gentility at that time to be very valuable I mean the whole point was to have a tranquil life you were supposed to be tranquil right that's what everyone was going for and I think that's why it had more of a positive one of the thing, reasons that had more positive connotation is she's not going to snap she's not going to be quick to anger she's not going to gossip she's yeah, not but gonna... it doesn't mean she's boring it doesn't no. mean that she yeah. doesn't have a personality and I think it actually is really beautiful that she does always want to think well of people oh man she will do um verbal and emotional acrobatics when she finds out about Wickham and Darcy when she gets all this information from Lizzie in the middle of the book and it's kind of amazing to see how you know, that, that fa- the famous line that's in the book where, you know, there's just enough goodness for one man between them. And I think Mr. Darcy might have all of it. And it's just like Jane is determined to make a way for them. That there's been a huge misunderstanding and nobody knows what the other person thought. And I'm sure they're not both bad or Wickham can't be bad. And Darcy's not bad. Oh, my it's gosh. very sweet how she just wants to believe in the essential goodness of people. This is so this is so timely too because after Bingley leaves, um, Elizabeth is pissed off and she says to Jane, she says to Jane, Hey, I know what's up. I bet it was Mr. Sisters. Darcy and his or yes, you're right. I bet it was his sisters who pulled yeah. him away. No, and Jane no, is so like, sweet. no, no. And then she says, I have no idea of there being so much design in the world as some people think or as some people assume. And that's targeted to to Lizzie saying, like, don't be so quick to, to fancy yourself intentionally wronged. Mm-hmm. And while Jane is actually incorrect in that she is being intentionally wronged by Bingley's sisters for reals, um, the point she's making to Lizzie is you shouldn't be so quick to take offense. And that's true about Lizzie. I mean, when Lizzie has this epiphany about Mr. Darcy and how she how quickly she was to assume that he was a jerk and had intentionally harmed Wickham and done all this stuff, Jane's approach to life was actually would have saved her from that. And uh, so Jane's saying, I have no idea that there's so much design in the world as some people think is, is really to that. Um, and, she says, uh, I think that she's actually a pretty um, amazing person. A lot of, I think, modern readers, because she's the words used to describe her are things like gentle and mild. Yeah. I yeah. think a lot of people tend to discount her. Yeah, um, as an but, intelligent person. Yeah, but it's also clear in the book that she's supposed to be like the bomb. Yeah, yeah. She's beautiful yeah. and kind and sweet and generous and 
yes, Lizzie's the one we all like. She's a heroine and she's witty and a spitfire and stuff like that. But Jane is kind of help. She's the ideal. Well, her candor and um, belief in the essential goodness of people saves her from the fall of you know the kind of bumpy road that Elizabeth has to travel. Yeah, she just has some really amazing qualities. Even for today, we're all so yeah. cynical. Yeah. Um, and it's just like really refreshing to kind of exist in the mind and listen to the words of someone who doesn't view the world that way. That's yeah. one of the reasons it's so nice to come back to Austin and refreshes your mind and reminds you how to be a, a, a candid person. And um, you do when these people are set forth before you who are like people to emulate, who are like Jane or like Eleanor. Um you wind up wanting to be more like them. I wind up wanting to be having those qualities and having better qualities um, personally. Yeah. So I'm kind of just to, because we will get into this more in our next episode where we can really dig, there's a lot of meat in the next section of the book, the kind of middle section. Um, I, for this reread, I'm take, I was taking a specific thought of looking for times, especially in the beginning where Lizzie gets it wrong because we always talk about this big change that Darcy has, but I think Lizzie changes just yes, as much. She does. And so that's kind of overlooked, I think on a lot of readings and a lot of discussions of the book. And so I think it's important to remember that she is just as wrong about a lot of stuff as he is. So, yes. I'm, I mean, I love her. Like everyone's going to love Lizzie Bennett always, uh -huh. but I'm trying to kind of grab on more to those parts where she is the one who jumps to conclusions or gets things wrong or is too prideful. Um, and then the ways that she will change further down the road, farther Let's definitely down the road. Do that. that's, that's a brilliant way to approach this. So, yeah. So I think we'll, we'll probably wrap up on that note. Uh, unless you object. I have, I have one final passage to read, which is one of my favorite comic passages uh, of this part of the book. Do it. Eliza Bennet, said Miss Bingley when the door was closed on her, is one of those young ladies who seek to recommend themselves to the other sex by undervaluing their own, and with many men I dare say it succeeds. But, in my opinion, it is a paltry device, a very mean art. Undoubtedly, replied Darcy, to whom this remark was chiefly addressed, there is meanness in all the arts which ladies sometimes condescend to employ for captivation. Whatever bears affinity to cunning is despicable. Miss Bingley was not so entirely satisfied with this reply as to continue the subject. <laughs> um, he, so, I mean, I love that he sees right through her all the time. Yes, and he, he intrepidly replies, Miss Elizabeth Bennet, when they're talking about her eyes, it's like he intrepidly uh, sort of um, pokes her and says, maybe I'm not so into you. So, I mean, maybe one of the reasons why Darcy is grumpy all the time when they're in Hertfordshire is because he has to hang out with yeah, two with women, these three Bingley. people who are awful, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Miss Bingley, Mr. Hurst, and Mrs. Hurst. And he loves Bingley, like his friend, yeah. but to hang out with him, he's got to spend every day with these people. Like, And she's yes. constantly throwing herself at him and being yes. horrible. Yes. And that just must get really grating. Oh, just like but that line. Like so grumpy. I declare there is nothing like reading. There is nothing so pleasurable as a book or whatever that they took on and they put on that stupid Bank of England banknote in the UK. Mm -hmm. It's the stupidest quote to ever grace a banknote. 
uh, why would they do that? Because Miss Bingley speaks it affectedly because she sees Darcy is reading. I mean, everything that comes out of her mouth is just an affectation to get Darcy's attention. Oh, did you catch, by the way, remember when we were discussing the movie for the Jane Austen book club and the quote that they put at the very beginning? Mm -hmm. um, like, what is it? Instability is the very essence of love or something yeah. like that. Did yeah, you yeah. catch where that appeared in the book? Yeah, doesn't um, Lizzie say it to Mrs. Gardner about Bingley? Yes. Yeah. Um, when she's warning her, like, don't fall in love with him, Lizzie, blah, blah, blah. And she was talking, the context is that your behavior actually change changes when you fall in love because you then become so wrapped up in just this one person and the fact that you're in love with him, you neglect everything else in your life. It's and so just that's like, what she's talking about when she says incivility is the very essence of love. It's just like Marianne and uh, Willoughby. Yeah, but it doesn't make any sense out of that context. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's very true. And what does it have to do with the Jane Austen book club story? I don't know. I don't know either. But I think it's also another example of how I don't think that's true. That's not yeah. healthy love, as yeah. we know. And so I think that's another example. And I don't know if she's, I can't remember if she's saying it kind of like in a off the cuff or like cliffy cl cliffy manner yeah she, she means it things. but i think we all know that's not actually what what love that it has depth should be like yeah she's sort of joking she's like clearly his intention was engrossed by jane i think that's what she means but uh but yeah okay so we will pick up again pride and prejudice with the post bingley departure story so the bing the bingley has left the building <laughs> along with everyone else and Jane is very very sad and Lizzie's very very mad and Mrs. Bennett will not be con consoled um, and that's where we will pick up our story Alrighty, but well, now would you like to <laughs> travel down the lane I would love to travel down the lane to the wheat chief to the wheat chief and um we I want to go oh, through Kristen, I, I, this, this box is simply stuffed <laughs> It is from a lot of people, and we really appreciate it, as always, and I don't want to forget anyone, so I have both the Facebook and the email up, and I'm trying to go through everything. Um, so in reverse chronological order, Eleanor has contacted us. Uh, it's great to hear from her. She actually did her dissertation on Clueless. Uh, yeah, as an that is the best Emma, dissertation ever. Which is amazing. Um she also mentioned she has a tattoo of an Austin quote, uh, which is a good obstinate, headstrong girl, which I also <laughs> love. And, you know, I was at, um, I went to a Shakespeare play last night and my friend showed up with a necklace that said obstinate, head, headstrong girl. Um, I want that. I want yeah, it. Which made me think of, of Eleanor again. But uh, thanks for contacting us. And I just want to, and I just want to say that, I mean, I've mentioned this to Kristen, but we haven't entirely talked about it. So she might like stab me later, but uh, Eleanor, I think it would be great if you, if in a future episode, we wanted, when we get into like our more recent adaptations, if we talk about Clueless, if you'd want to come on and kind of share some thoughts with us, I think that would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. In the future, when we enter our Clueless phase. Um... <laughs> I mean, we're like that every day, Kristen. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> And so we also heard from uh, Yuziani, who um, contacted us from the Outback, Australia. I love hearing from people in the Outback. 
Watch out for those funnel web spiders, y'all. Yeah, basically everything in Australia will try to kill you. Yeah, no, none of our listeners are in any danger because the more I hear about the wildlife of Australia, the more convinced I become that you just step out your door and something will try to poison you. Well, they don't have funnel web spiders in Victoria, which I learned from the show Miss Fisher's Mysteries. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but uh, yeah, so just be careful out there kids kangaroos they will like kick you to death like i'm Mm -hmm. terrified of australia i don't think i can go there because i've heard so many scary stories but um now back to to yuziani um yes her favorite book is persuasion and uh i've started to ask people what their favorite books are and she also mentioned she loves the terry pratchett Discworld novels oh holla I just started reading those too. They're amazing. They are so t- tangent, fantasy tangent. I need like a little soundtrack piece for when I go into one of my fantasy tangents. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge Neil Gaiman fan. And so my favorite Terry Pratchett book is actually Good Omens, which he wrote with Neil Gaiman. I've read several of the Discworld. It's a little too whimsy and ridiculous. And I mean that in a kind way um, for me, but um, oh God, when he passed away recently, it was so sad. And I'm really glad you're reading Discworld, Kristen. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I am enjoying it. Um, I, I did take a break from Miss Fisher, but I do want to go back. Um, <laughs> oh she also, she also... a break from Miss Fisher's sex mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they really should be called. They are Miss Fisher's sex mysteries. That's exactly what they are. Um, after, after we put this podcast out, I bet they have a bump in their viewership on Netflix. <laughs> For some reason, everyone in the Toronto area is watching this Fisher's Mystery. Yes! <laughs> that was me clapping. I don't know if that came across on the mic, but I probably shouldn't do that. That's um, okay. They probably also heard Bay, uh, Bayard pour me another glass of wine and clink glass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she had some interesting um, comments on Mansfield Park. And she did say Fanny changes for her on each reading, which I can totally relate to. And, um, and she's making this point, which I completely agree with. Uh, it's as if Austin is saying, okay, fellas, if you believe a woman should be all this, let's see how you'd actually treat her. And so it was interesting to see how frustrated the male characters get when they couldn't convince her to go against her own judgment and all the while praising her for that same unfailing judgment. That's very insightful. Yes. Yes. Um, readers are so brilliant. I hope that one day someone will look back at my life and be like, wow, you know, on each reading, I really interpret Maggie's character differently. <laughs> sometimes she seems really crazy, and other times she just seems like sort of kind of crazy. <laughs> um, we heard from Lou again, which um, I don't think I mentioned this, that she reminded us that uh, Greg Wise, who plays Willoughby in the movie um, of Sense and Sensibility, the Emma Thompson movie, is married to Emma Thompson. And That's they right. Have, they, I was wrong. They didn't just go out. They got married. Which they have kids. Go, girl. And, yeah. And, um, and Lou He's says, also aged very well, by the way. <laughs> he, Lou says they're her, like, goal couple or couple goals or whatever. Um, oh, man. If I could be half as awesome as Emma Thompson ever in my life. Yeah, I know. That I know, right? Be... Just even having written the script for that sense and sensibility. She's just so, you can tell, here's the thing with a lot of the actors who are really, really good, like her, you can tell that they're really smart. Yeah. Yeah, it takes that kind of intelligence and empathy to be able to portray other people. And to story. understand people. Yeah. Yeah. 
we heard from Alicia, again, our, our first fan, who said that she enjoyed our, um, our Sense and Sensibility episode and um, has been listening to it more than once, which is, I'm so like flattered and just thank you so much, Alicia. I'm so glad you're enjoying this. We always, we aim to please and um, hope you enjoy this one too. And we heard from Annika who wrote to say, Oh yeah, she was talking about fanfic and she was like, how about making a podcast a podcast about some of the best fanfics? And I'm sort of still on the fence about the fanfics and the web series, but I would be open. We're to definitely it. talking about the Lizzie Bennet diaries. Okay. All right. That's happening, Kristen. I know you're not a big fan of those kind of like modern takes or fanfic, and I haven't really read any fanfic thick per se like that just exists on the internet but we are talking about the lizzie bennett diaries and you are going to watch it <laughs> okay. oh my god here's what we're gonna do when you come into town for our friend's wedding next month you and i are gonna watch some of the lizzie bennett diaries together oh, great all right i'll put a bottle yes. of wine in case. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um I, I would not be opposed to doing a podcast about fanfic i think that's a really good idea and really interesting i haven't read any because I try to, I mean, I mentioned this on the Facebook page. We were talking about, um, I was rewatching Death Comes to Pemberley. And we were talking about, um, you know, do you, reader, listeners, do you like reading kind of not canon fan written novels? Um, and fanfic is, I guess, more like short form um, or just unpublished. So I haven't really read any, but I, guess I wouldn't be, I wouldn't object to reading it. I just generally well, stay away from it. I think this this request actually probably encompassed the um, the Jane Austen fanfic community where the people are published in in full length books. Well, um, I don't, and I don't mean to say unpublished. I'm because I, I have read. Um, I mean, it just fanfic to me um, just kind of implies internet. Oh yeah, well that's and the way it, gets, that's it got started. Because I mean, we have one of our listeners has published an excellent book oh, yeah. that you know, takes place in the world of Austen, and there are many published works novel length that take place in the world of Austin or our sequels or things like that. Um, but when I hear fanfic, I mostly just kind of think internet. That's how it started out, man. I was all over those Republic of Pemberley boards back in the, we have to talk about among the Janeites too, because this comes up in among the Janeites, but back in the yeah. day, Pemberley.com, the Republic of Pemberley, there are these boards where people would post this sometimes really good fanfic. And sometimes it was just, Darcy and Elizabeth getting it on, which I, I was that. so there for back I'll in read the that. day. <laughs> um, Let's can we conclude that in the discussion? So I have to do research. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the key okay. to doing a hey, last like, quote. Let's... Hang on, hang on, hang on. The key to doing a quote fanfic episode would be clearly defining what we mean by it, and then yes. limiting the discussion to that kind of that. You know. Yes, because there is a huge huge world of public austin related publishing it's like its own thing there yeah. are hundreds and hundreds of novels so we'll have it's like to be a separate genre it is it is uh we got a lot of good by the way check the facebook page if you're interested because we on um on that post in the comments we got a lot of good recommendations from tammy mm -hmm. um so check that out and um also annika did also mention that if you um are interested in more persuasion and you just have to watch more Persuasion. There is a 1971 adaptation on YouTube. Oh. Um, Annika says, the acting is middling. The interior shots are very obviously on a soundstage. The hair is very big and not very period. And the clothing is very theater. 
but uh, you know, sometimes you just need more persuasion in your life. Um, I think so the power of the stories that we're telling, even when you've got really crappy effects and the acting's not great, like the stories are still so compelling. <laughs> and um, I did mention, I was like, we were talking about, I think Regency dressed and manners. And I was like, yeah, it was so interesting to learn. I feel like such a rube saying this now. I was like, didn't they have some kind of language with the fan where you can oh, put a fan yes. in a certain way? Oh, yes. And she wrote back, she's like, you know, that was not real. That's a made up thing. A manufacturer of fans distributed that. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, is that just in British culture that she's referring to? Because I'm pretty sure before like back in you know versailles days like that was a thing i think i i don't know i don't know apparently i know nothing apparently it's all a lie it's yeah. all corporate consumerism even <laughs> even then it's just all a lie it's just made up by somebody wanting to sell fans <laughs> um okay so i think that's all i have bullshit <laughs> yeah well what else is new um if i missed you i'm sorry but i think that's all i have for this episode's week chief Thank you to everyone who wrote in. We really do love hearing from you. Yes, thank you for writing in. And I think that's, I think we're good to go. Another episode on the books. Okay, do we have any old, well, we covered our correspondence. I'm trying to think. We used to do like the old business, new business thing, but I can't really think of anything. Well, Except just to like, what, what, sorry, go ahead. Well, would you like to add some personal news about a new certain roommate you now have? Oh, yeah, Baird moved in. Yay. Yay. Um, so that's really great. He moved in last week. And my place is covered with boxes, and I thought I would care, but I really don't because I'm just really happy. <laughs> and he's really spruced the place up. He's so handy. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's exciting news. Um, I guess, oh, I was going to say something. I know. Oh, I guess this would be a new business is that next month, yes, you heard me mention it earlier, but the rumors are real. Kristen and Maggie will be reunited in person. <laughs> area so so we will definitely be recording an episode when we are together yes Kristen yeah okay and I'll make her watch the Lizzie Bennett diaries and maybe we can get Kevin to guest star again because he'll be <laughs> here too he says he's never doing it again no really? <laughs> yeah why I, I, he thinks he feels like he's intruding on a part of my life that's special. I mean we, we asked them to do it yeah we did and I thought it was funny. We got yeah, they got fan mail, which I thought I, was adorable. I think they had fun. So it was kind of interesting, you guys. Okay, I'll just tell you because Bay's in the other room and he probably can't hear me. Um, if you listen to the unedited version, it was kind of hilariously painful because it's like two quiet guys forced to interact and talk <laughs> over like two there's a lot of dead air, is what I'm saying. <laughs> They're like they're both kind of unassuming. It was very funny, but they're yeah. delightful. I they thought are. it was funny. Don't you just love them? I love them. I mean, let's yes. not forget who the stars of this thing are, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, I think that's it. Think that's <laughs> it. All right. See you next time, guys. All right. We'll see you next time for Pride and Prejudice Part Two. Part Two. Part D. Part D. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Part D.